Welcome. You are listening to Aftersight. This recording is intended solely for individuals who are blind or have low vision. Hello and thank you for joining us for American Heritage Program. My name is Chris Mahalik. Today's stories is found online at HistoryNet.com. Why the Civil Rights Movement was really a guerrilla war by Thomas E. Ricks. In this excerpt from his new book, Waging a Good War, Tom Ricks explains why the fight for equality had to use military, military tactics to achieve its goals. In the war over civil rights, the two sides faced very different tasks. The enforcers of segregation were committed to maintaining the status quo everywhere. This put them at a disadvantage because they had so much territory to defend. The civil rights movement, by contrast, usually could pick the time and place of engagements. Once a campaign got underway, it also generally could set the tempo of action. Authorities could respond with harassing actions, ranging from traffic tickets to injunctions to even banning the state chapter of the NAACP, and they often resorted to violence. But even so, the initiative remained almost always with the forces of desegregation. One of the best examples of the variety of novel operations available to the movement was the Freedom Rides. In them, a small band conducted the equivalent of a daring but almost suicidal foray behind enemy lines. The best military analogy may be the Doolittle Raid, the American bombing attack on Japan early in World War II. In April 1942, just five months after the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, 16 American B-25 bombers, each with a crew of five, took off from an aircraft carrier in the North Pacific a job that their pilots had never done before and for which the planes had not been built. They flew toward Japan without their usual escort of fighter planes, making them enormously vulnerable if detected. What's more, they left behind some of their defensive machine guns in order to make the planes lighter and so extended their range. The flyers knew their mission was dangerous, Indeed, some of them would be captured by the Japanese and kept on starvation diets. Three of them, those taken prisoner were executed as war criminals. The point of the American raid was not to inflict significant damage, but simply to boost the morale of the American public and damage that of the Japanese public by showing that the American military could retaliate for Pearl Harbor the planes did, in fact, bomb the Japanese capital and five other cities. A less predictable consequence was the effect of the embarrassed Japanese military. As the military historian Adrian Lewis puts it, the Doolittle Raid caused the Japanese to act rashly, which led to the defeat at Midway, which became a major turning point in the war. Likewise, the Freedom Riders, a small group of committed activists organized in May 1961 by James Farmer, National Director of the Congress of Racial Equality, or CORE, rode buses from Washington, D.C. into the Deep South. They traveled light and penetrated deep into enemy territory, unprotected, to take the segregationist enemies by surprise both in their tactics and in their strategy. The sit-ins had taken place mainly in urban areas in the Upper South 
Tennessee, North Carolina, and Virginia. The purpose of the Freedom Rides was, like a military raid, to carry the flag of the cause into previously untouched areas, even into rural areas of the Deep South. We somehow had to cut across state lines and establish the position that we were entitled to act any place in the country, no matter where we hung our hat and called home, because it was our country, Farmer explained. A secondary goal was to get the attention of the Kennedy administration and try to push it off the fence on the issue of civil rights. The organizers had some reason to believe that the administration was ready to move. Just as the first freedom ride was getting underway, Robert Kennedy was preparing a speech on civil rights. It would be his first formal address as an attorney general in his brother's fledgling administration. When he delivered it at the University of Georgia on May 6, 1961, he appeared to endorse the civil rights movement. If one man's rights are denied, the rights of all are endangered, he stated. It was high time, he said, for the South to make some difficult local adjustments. But even as Kennedy spoke, he was being overtaken by events. Before the month was out, the Freedom Rides would push him, put actions behind his words, challenging the South to begin making difficult changes. Unfortunately, he would fail that test. From D.C. to the Deep South, persistent advantage of the Civil Rights Movement was that it was innovative and so was able to keep up its opponents off balance. Tactically, the Freedom Rides were something new, recalled Floyd Mann then the director of the Alabama State Police, something that the state police had not been confronted with in the past. We'd had local demonstrations by local people, but this was the first time we'd had an interstate movement on the part of, pe of the people. It was just totally something new to law enforcement in Alabama. It caught them off guard. The situation was ripe for exploitation, the Supreme Court had ruled in December 1960 in Boynton v. Virginia that state segregation laws could not be used against interstate travelers, yet court rulings and legislation mean little if they are not in implemented on the ground. In this case, the Interstate Commerce Commission had failed to enforce the High Court's ruling. Waiting rooms, restaurants, and toilets across the South remained segregated. Carrying out the freedom rides involved far more than simply boarding a bus. All too often, the civil rights movement is remembered only for its visible actions such as marches, speeches, and other public events. That neglects the key fact that successful civil rights campaigns almost always were based on extensive planning and reconnaissance. It was essential to know beforehand what you were getting into where your confrontations were likely to take place, and who your local allies might be. So before launching the Freedom Rights, Ford dispatched a young staff member, Tom Gaither, a black South Carolinian and veteran of sit-ins, to scout the planned route. Gaither had been one of the people to conceive the Freedom Rights, inspired in part by a biography of Gandhi he had been reading 
Its task was to travel the planned route, make maps of bus terminals, and find places where the Freedom Riders could safely stay overnight between their bus rides. Gaither also assessed the state of racial tension in each town. He reported back that he was most worried by two cities in Alabama, Anniston and Birmingham. Raids and other commando operations moving fast and light through enemy territory require troops with above-average combat skills and high training levels, admonishes the military expert James Dunnigan. The same was true for the men and women who volunteered for the initial Freedom Ride foray, for whom the equivalent, equivalent of combat skills was a deep and abiding commitment to the cause. Fuller held preparatory meetings in Washington, D.C. for its handful of recruits. Gaither told them what he had seen on his, recon, on his reconnaissance assignment. A lawyer briefed them on the legal issues they would face, focusing on what to do if and when arrested. The presence of black riders in white-only area of the bus terminals would force local authorities to face the contradiction that their segregation laws were at odds with national law governing interstate travel. A social scientist discussed the culture of the white South. In military terms, they were being introduced to the terrain of their area of operations. The recruits then went through three days of intense role-playing with racial taunts and drinks being thrown. After experiencing this, one volunteer dropped out, a sign that the exercise was effective. Acting out the scenarios had the obvious function of preparing people for what they might face, but it also gave the writers a sense of one another's personalities and characters always helpful for a unit going into combat. On the night before they left Washington, the writers went out for Chinese food, a taste that was new to John Lewis. It was like the Last Supper, because you didn't know what to expect going to the Freedom Ride, he remembered. Historians differ on the number of writers who left the Capitol on the first day, Thursday, May 4th. It seems to have been 13 to 15 writers and three accompanying journalists, about the same as the number of aircraft in a Doolittle raid. There is no question that, in terms of social movements, it was a small group. Yet, as Gandhi had taught, it is never the numbers that count. It is always the quality, more so when the forces of violence are uppermost. The greater the chance of a fierce reception, the more imperative it is that nonviolent activists are disciplined and cohesive. Indeed, for his famous Salt March in 1930, Gandhi restricted his column to 78 people, all well-trained and deeply dedicated. But as it proceeded hundreds of miles toward the sea, his small group was greeted by crowds as large as 50,000. The Freedom Riders departed Washington, D.C. in two groups, one taking a Greyhound, the other a Trayways bus. The plan was for both groups to hop buses from city to city. Their route had been designed to place them each night in towns with black communities where they could find refuge, and also where they could meet with local groups and explain their mission 
with the hope of sparking longer-lasting local actions. The plan was to reach New Orleans by the bus on May, May 17th. As it happened, that geographical endpoint was never reached. But in the process, the writers achieved their strategic goal by forcing the segregation power to show the world the degree of violence it was willing to use to enforce the suppression of the rights of black people. In addition, the fact that segregationists would attack white people got the attention of Americans nationwide. And so they rolled south, at first not attracting much attention, but braced for the violence they knew was inevitable. It was like a soldier in a nonviolent army, recalled John Lewis. On May 6th, as Attorney General Kennedy spoke at the University of Georgia, they traveled across southern Virginia from Petersburg to Lynchburg. The ride passed without incident until Tuesday, May 9th, when Lewis and the lead stepped off a bus in Rock Hill, South Carolina, and walked into the waiting room marked white. White toughs waiting there punched him to the floor and began kicking him. Albert Bigelow, Lewis's assigned seatmate, a white grandfather from Connecticut, interposed his body, and soon he was clubbed down as well. Then a white female rider stepped up and was knocked to the floor. Lewis was proud that they had passed the test of not being provoked to respond to violence. After this incident, Lewis had to leave the ride for an interview in Philadelphia about getting a fellowship in Africa or India. He did that, then returned home to Nashville, planning to rejoin the Freedom Ride in Birmingham. The situation grew even more perilous in Washington, South Carolina, a mill town with a huge Confederate memorial and a reputation for hardcore racism. Henry Hank Thomas, a black writer and a Howard University student, was arrested at the bus station for trespassing by being in a white waiting room, but making a legal case was not always the purpose of detaining someone. The charge was dropped, and Thomas was released around midnight and driven by a police officer to the bus station, which was about to close and where a group of surly whites waited outside holding sticks and baseball bats. The police officer ordered Thomas out of the car. Thomas began thinking about old movies he had seen, about blacks being taken out of southern jails in the middle of the night. As Thomas reluctantly stepped out of the police car, a black man rolled up in his own vehicle. It was driven by a courageous Reverend Cecil Ivory, a civil rights activist leader and pastor of a Presbyterian church in Rock Hill, who had been asked by court to keep an eye on the Howard student while he was in jail. Ivory, who used a wheelchair as a result of childhood injuries to his spine, told Thomas to hop in. He didn't have to tell me twice, Thomas recalled. We hightailed it out of there. Good planning and organization pay off in ways that no one but the participants might even might ever notice, but that can mean the difference between life and death. For Ivory to intervene, several things had to happen. Cora had to know that Thomas was detained, had to have someone to contact with that information, and had to hope that the person contacted would prove reliable in a hazardous condition, as Ivory did. Next story. Meet the U.S. Army's first black surgeon, Alexander Augusta, by Michael Williams. 
Alexandra Augusta swam forward against waves of racism to become the United States Army's first black surgeon. Just beyond the Old Post Castle entrance school at Arlington National Cemetery in Arlington, Virginia, stands an obelisk headstone bearing a detailed yet Spartan inscription. Commissioned Surgeon of Colored Volunteers, April 4, 1863, with rank of Major Commissioned Regimental Surgeon of the 7th Regiment U.S. Colored Troops, October 2, 1863. Breveted Lieutenant Colonel U.S. Volunteers, March 13, 1865. For faithful and meritorious service, Beneath these impressive credentials chiseled in bold letters is the name Augusta. To know the life, times, and military career of the man buried here is to better understand why Americans fought a civil war. Alexander Thomas Augusta was born in 1825 to so-called free persons of color in Norfolk, Virginia. A naturally intelligent boy, he was curious about the world hungry for knowledge and improvement, and most important, driven by an unstoppable spirit. But Augusta lived in an age of slavery and slave uprisings. He was six years old when Nat Turner staged this violent rebellion against slave owners in nearby Southampton County, killing up to 65 people, 51 of whom were white. From then on, Suspicion and distrust reigned over the black community, free and enslaved. Whites did everything in their power to keep blacks from organizing, including efforts to hold them back intellectually. To teach a person of color how to read, for example, was a serious offense, and from the slaveholding perspective, an imminent threat to life and property. Augusta, however, vigorously pursued his ambitions, one of them was reading. While in his late teens, he secretly learned to do so with the help of Daniel Payne, who later became both a bishop in the African Methodist Episcopal Church and the president of Ohio's Wilberforce University. Augusta read anything he could find, and although he was omnivorous when it came to subject matter, he nevertheless had to have his favorite topic, medicine. Increasingly well-read, Augusta set out to Baltimore, Maryland in 1847. Here he settled down temporarily, and always with an eye toward doing more than reading. What he had in mind was virtually out of the question for a black man in mid-19th century America. Shortly after landing in Baltimore, Augusta moved to Philadelphia with hopes of studying medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. Sadly, in his attempt at admission, he met with his first taste of the institutionalized prejudice that was quickly becoming a cancer in the to the Union. According to some sources, the school denied his application because he was inadequately prepared for the curriculum. The reality of circumstances, however, skews more in the direction of skin color and the unsavory notion of a black man transcending the boundaries of his designated position in society. But Augusta would have none of it, and following a brief stint of tutelage under the guidance of a professor at the university, returned to Baltimore, married, 
and around 1850 went to California, where he worked as a barber in the midst of the booming gold rush. By most accounts, Augusta was saving money to finance his next move, which took him and his wife to Toronto, Canada. Shortly after his arrival, Augusta enrolled as a medical student at the University of Toronto's Trinity College. For the next six years, he endured the rigors of medical school, meanwhile working side jobs as a chemist and a pharmacist, selling as one of the advertisements announced patent medicines, perfumery, dye stuff, etc., as well as services such as tooth extraction, the filling of prescriptions, and the application of leeches. Finally, in 1856, Augusta accomplished a feat that many African Americans in his day would never have entertained, let alone successfully completed. He graduated from Trinity College with a Bachelor of Medicine, according to the college's president, John McCall. He was one of my most brilliant students, Not surprisingly, Augusta enjoyed Toronto, which was known for its racial tolerance. Life there was normal. He could excel without swimming against the currents of racial bigotry. After his graduation, he opened a medical practice and had had a fair amount of white patients. He also devoted enormous energy to activism within the local black community. In addition to his work as a physician, Augusta cultivated a conspicuously public presence as a champion of racial equality. He helped draft petitions against anti-black candidates for the Canadian Parliament, arranged events featuring abolitionist speakers, and served as the president of the Provincial Association for the Education and Elevation of the Colored People of Canada. But the safety and prosperity he found in his new home unfortunately didn't define the world over, and it definitely didn't match conditions for blacks in his native land, where the election of President Abraham Lincoln had sent this country spiraling on a path to civil war. Over the next few years, Augusta remained in Toronto reading headlines that dissolved from one seemingly earth-moving event to another, the rebel bombardment of Fort Sumter, the Battle of Antietam, and in 1863, President Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation. The latter was a turning point for thousands of African Americans, including Augusta, who saw the proclamation as a beacon of hope and a call to action. Enforced as of January 1st, 1863, Lincoln's proclamation freed the slaves and allowed for the enlistment of black soldiers into the Union Army. As a doctor, Augusta's knowledge and skills were of great value to the war effort, and he immediately drafted a letter to the president offering his services. I beg leave to apply to you for an appointment as surgeon to some of the colored regiments or as physician to serve of the depots of freedmen. I was compelled to leave my native country and came to this on account of prejudice against color for the purpose of obtaining a knowledge of my profession and having having accomplished that object at one of the principal educational institutions of this province I am now prepared to practice it and would like to be in a position where I can be of use to my race. Lincoln and Secretary of War 
Stanton, Edwin M. Stanton forwarded Augustus' correspondence to the Army Medical Board in Washington, D.C., which summarily rejected him for several reasons, his skin color, foremost among them. Still, Augustus had never cowed to prejudice, whether it was encountered in learning how to read, going to medical school, or serving his native country in the fight for the Union and emancipation. So Augusta left Toronto for Washington, where he immediately petitioned the board, I have come near a thousand miles at great expense and sacrifice, he told them, hoping to be of some use to the country and to my race at this eventful period. This simple statement moved the board to give the 38-year-old physician a chance at the qualifying exams. Augusta passed with flying colors and received both an appointment as the United States Army's first black surgeon and a commission as a major, making him the highest-ranking African-American officer in the U.S. military. We'll finish this story next week. Thank you for joining us. My name is Chris Mahalik. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aftersight.org or by calling 303 786 7777.